I'd been the associate pastor in a lot of churches, and really, that was the pastor's job. And uh, so I sat down with some people over the years, and I tried to learn how to do this well. And uh, one of the things that one of my mentors said to me is, he says, when you sit down with the family and friends, ask them to give you single words to describe the person. And use those words that you hear to weave together the personal things that you're going to say because oftentimes you might not know the person very well. I thought that was really good advice. And I think it would be interesting in each of our lives to think of what would be the single words people would use to describe us. I actually think that Paul, when he was talking to Timothy, gave him similar advice. Because Paul is probably one of the the most joyous people to preach from. Because Paul thinks linearly. And he thinks kind of in an outline. But I I think that probably at some point he said to Timothy, he said, you know, when when you're giving a message, when you're giving information, you should be able to distill down what you're trying to say to just a few words. And in that few words will probably be where the rest of your message jumps from. You see, that's what we see in the book of Ephesians. It's so very fascinating. As we come to the end of the book of Ephesians, there's one last prayer in verses 23 and 24 of Ephesians chapter 6. But what's really interesting is, well, let's take a look at those verses. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24, he says this, Peace be with you, be to the brothers, and love with faith from the Lord, from, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with, the, with love incorruptible. Now, what's interesting here is let's go back to verse 2 of chapter 1. In verse 2 of chapter 1, he says what? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you notice, he started with two words, grace and peace. And his prayer at the end of the message was three words, grace and love and peace. And what's really interesting is if you take and just do a Word study through the book of Ephesians on these three words. This is a lot of the message of all that he was saying in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, he's trying to lay out for them a deeper understanding of little words. You know, when you do that in in a, a funeral and you start giving those words, as soon as you give that word, you can just watch the smiles go across the whole room because everybody, yeah, that's that's what Fred's like. You know, that's what he's like. You can give another word that maybe is, isn't the kindest or the gentlest word, but is a nice way of saying something that was a harder part of his personality. And you'll still see some chuckles and some, yeah, you know, um, like when I did my father's, one of the words I used to describe Nancy's father was demanding. And there were lots of people nodding their heads because they knew that he was a very exacting man. 
But these three words, peace, love, and grace, are, are the message that he wanted to make sure. At, at the, he came to the end of his message, and this letter was getting ready to circulate, and as he, as he was praying one last prayer for it, the three things that he wanted to make sure that they understood were these three words. He wanted them to have an understanding. Now, peace and love were about how they were supposed to treat one another. And grace was a lot about how they were supposed to respond to the God that loved them. So let's drag ourselves again through the book of Ephesians and see some of this, the little pictures that go along with what each one of these words mean. And we'll start with peace. And as he talks about peace, he goes, peace be to the brothers. You know, he had a real passion that he wanted to see that the church kind of got along. That when you came into this place, that there was a sense that inside the body of Christ, there was a peace that existed there. A peace that overrode there. Have you ever entered into a room and just kind of had the sense that there is something very wrong here? You can kind of feel the tension. You you sense the little bit of sarcasm going back and forth. You look at how everybody's interacting, and maybe they're they are very polite and they've got all the manners and everything right, but you sense that this is not a place of peace. Take a look at how Paul described peace and what peace is. He talked about the gospel being the gospel of peace. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. He goes on to say this in this passage, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments and ordinances. There is a sense that that we can build walls between each other, that we can allow ourselves to be uncomfortable with other people, that we can build walls of hostility in relationships. But his prayer was not that there would be walls of hostility that existed, you know, where literally you can sometimes go into church and you sense that this group over here wants the carpet green and this group over here wants the carpet brown and the people in the middle aren't sure what to do so they just sit there. The walls of hostility that he understood as a Jew were strong. We talked about this, remember? There was a difference between being Jewish and non-Jewish. There was a wall that existed there. There was literally a wall that existed in the temple for that very reason that said, this is the wall. Gentiles can come to this part of the temple, but you have to be Jewish to get any further. There were walls that existed. There's are walls that exist. God wants to overcome the walls. And the gospel of peace and what He does inside of our hearts means that there should not be walls inside the body of Jesus Christ because He has broken down the walls. Now, sometimes we justify walls, don't we? We say, well, well, if you would just understand, you know, we, we talk about this concept and then someone will come to me and say, well, I, I have this situation and I want you to explain to me why I have this as an exception to that situation. 
But the first thing that we know is that peace is about the gospel of peace. And there there was a wall that was broken down. He continues in the passage and says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. No longer Jew and Gentile. Just one new man. One body of Christ. One family together. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. You know, a lot of things happen because of the cross. But one of the things that happens because of the cross is that the relational hostility that can exist can be replaced with the peace that the gospel gives us by being one new man together. He goes on and says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. It is so nice to know that in a world where there's always some way to exclude somebody, that the gospel is inclusive, and that inclusion is one of the basis for our peace. In Ephesians 4, he says that we need to be eager to maintain a unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. There's oneness that comes. He describes that in this next verse. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The peace creates a oneness because we know who the peace giver is and we know also who the one that can bring retribution is. You know, I I think that we need to remember that in the armor that we're given in the book of Ephesians, we don't get the cloak of vengeance. It's not ours. It's the Lord's alone. We can be at peace because there is a sense that God is in charge, (coughs) and in being in charge, He will always make things right. I can tell you in the short term, sometimes I have doubted that. But I can tell you in the long term that I have experienced that reality. There's a oneness that God can bring. You know, this might sound really interesting, but one of the stories that I tell is about the choir director in my home church. I just saw a picture of her. She was on Facebook. And because of the gospel of peace, I looked and said, she's looking pretty good. She's doing okay. Even though for years I gave myself permission to have a wall of hostility there. As I looked at that picture, I smiled and said, only God could do this. I had every right to be angry. And yet you have given me the gospel of peace in this situation. We're armored with peace. And the armor describes the shoes that you wear as putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So God has armed us with peace. And so when Paul said these little tiny words that he wanted peace for all the brothers, he was not speaking of a small thing because he had described it as being a gospel and a oneness and an armor that each every one of us can have and each one of us can wear. He goes on, In that passage, he talks about love with faith to all the brothers. Love with faith to all the brothers. So what is he talking about? In chapter 2, he says this, 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ by grace that you have been saved. The cross is all about love, isn't it? It's about this love that we have because of this love that he gave us. In John it says this, if you don't love your brother, then do you love God? He was praying about their love. He talked about being a great love. In chapter 3, he says this, that according to the riches of His glory, which He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He goes on in the passage and says, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Isn't that cool? Rooted and grounded in love. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, he's not talking about a word that means very little. He's talking about a word that means very much. And there is a sense that as we anchor our lives, as we root and ground our lives in the love that this cross represents, that it gives us ability to love one another in ways that we can't imagine. Because occasionally we'll go to God and we'll say, God, this person's really hard to love. And, and, and He'll sit there silently and listen to us and we'll start explaining why. And you'll say, and then we might somehow say, you wouldn't understand what it's like to love people that don't love you. And then God will go, oh, I know much about that. And that's what grounds us. What grounds us is that we were loved in a way that was unnecessary and not expected. We were loved when we didn't deserve it. And that's what roots and grounds us and gives us the ability to love one another. It's a forbearing love. In chapter 4, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. God is calling us to have a love for one another that's forbearing and it's gentle and it has humility. In those unloving moments that I have in my life, I find myself saying things like, I can't believe. How could they? And there's no gentleness. There's selfishness in what I think I deserve. And yet God gives me this ability to love with humility because of the love that He gave us. It goes on and there's a a maturing love. It says, so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the wind waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. But he goes on to say this, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Love is the fertilizer that makes us grow. It's, it's the thing that holds us together. And, and God calls us to have an ever-maturing love for one another. 
I really loved Nancy 32 years ago. You know, we got away last week and we, we celebrated our 32nd anniversary. But I would not trade the kind of love I had 32 years ago for the kind of love I have now. I, I wouldn't trade for the maturity and the changing in love. And God's saying, I, I want you to love one another. And Paul is saying, I want you to have love with faith for the brothers. But he realizes that as faith grows, that's what grows love. Because all of a sudden, see, when we don't have faith, we, we, we think that we have to do it in our own strength. And, and we think that God makes mistakes and His sovereignty all of a sudden doesn't matter because all of a sudden we can go, God, you obviously made a mistake bringing this person into my life. And in that mistake... I obviously have permission to not love them. <laughs> you know, or go, go something like this. God, what were you thinking when you brought this person? They are so hard to love. And he's going, I know. I brought them there because I want you to have mature love that's bigger than your flesh. That's ever growing. That, that's driven by your love for me. I know. I know you couldn't love this person in your own strength. But I brought them into your life so we can love them together. And we can do this amazing thing. You know, that's why we have relatives. You know, we kind of pick our friends, but God brings these other people into our lives and we're like, why are they here? Well, you're just kind of connected by biology to them. You know? That's why we have kids. Sometimes we have kids that are really easy to love, but other times we have a child that challenges our need to walk closer with God. But God is calling us to a maturing love. And a maturing love is one that trusts Him. In those simple words that Paul is saying, so much is packed in. He goes on and says, not only should we have a maturing love, but we should have a God-like love. Therefore, be imitators as God, as His beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to him. He, he speaks specifically to men about this, to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, there's so many other words you can use to describe it, but Godlike is probably the best. God is calling us to love outside of ourselves outside of what's normal, outside of our ethnicity, outside of our, our, our circumstances, outside of our pedigree. God is calling us to love like He loved. And the example of that love is the cross. Because He loved us when we deserved no love. In fact, today He looks at each one of us and He doesn't look at those of us who are even saved out of our goodness and out of the greatness of what we do. He always looks through the lens of the cross and what Jesus Christ did for us. He always sees us through the lens of Christ's sacrifice and Christ's righteousness for us. So this is what He says about love. He says it's God's great love. It's grounded in love. It's forbearing love. It's maturing love. It's God-like love. And these are the vertical things that He's calling us to. He's calling us in the body of Christ to have peace with one another and to have love that's driven not by our flesh, but by faith. 
And the reason that we can do that is the last phrase that he says there. From God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't love based on something that we can do. We, we love out of a gift that's given to us. He gives us the ability to do these things. When they seem impossible, when life is hard, when there is conflict in the body of Christ, he's saying, wait a minute here. I will give you a supernatural ability in what I give to you so you can live at peace and you can love each other out of faith. But it's more than peace and love. It's also about grace. He says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Now this is interesting because I, I, I think this shows the maturity of our relationship with Jesus Christ because love uncorruptible is love that doesn't fade or diminish or change. It's eternal love for God. And when we're young in our faith, that's not where we're at. When we're young in our faith, we take a look at grace and we take a look at the love of God and we love God kind of. Or we love Him circumstantially. Or we love Him conditionally. And all of a sudden, when we're mature, immature in our faith, all of a sudden, sometimes the hard circumstances come into life. And one of the things we question is whether or not God loves us. You know what I'm talking about? Met with a young man. He says, I said, how are you doing? I said, well, he says, since my grandfather died, I am not doing so well. I said, oh, Why? How could God take my grandpa away? So because something happened in your life, all of a sudden it's harder to love God. Well, I, I wouldn't want to put it that way. But that's the truth. As we mature in our faith, all of a sudden we take a look at the grace it's given it and the, the many facets to grace, and all of a sudden we don't waver as much in our love for God. It's not spun around by circumstances, by hard things, by hardships, by disappointments. All of a sudden, our love for God can be a constant in spite of how hard life is. In spite of the circumstances we don't understand. In spite of the the hurt and the hardness that could come to our hearts, our love for God can become this constant. And that's this picture that he has. He says, when you fully understand grace and all that it is, all of a sudden, I don't think you're going to have to waver in your love for God because you're going to be so blown away by that love of God. And that's why he spent three chapters in this book talking about the many facets of God's grace. Remember that? Well, let's just do a quick review. In chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about His glorious grace, which He blessed us in the Beloved. Going on in chapter 1, it says that He gives us a grace that enlightens us. He says that the God of, my, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. All of a sudden, grace can give us the ability to see things differently. It empowers us. 
in verse 119, it says, what is, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? It empowers us. In chapter 2, it talks about the fact that but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And we find out that grace brings life to us and resurrection. You go on in verse 13 and it says, Now, but now in Christ, you who were once far off and been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've read that passage and talked about it in terms of love, but in terms of grace, all of a sudden grace unites us and makes us one man that used to be many different things. That's what grace does. As you read on in chapter 3, it talks about, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. God's grace gives us gifts and the ability to serve Him, which is given to me by the working of His power. We realize that His power is made real in us. You know, there is no one that went through harder circumstances, if you read the list, than Paul. And yet, at the end of this passage, he wanted them to be so overwhelmed by understanding of grace that they would be forever unwavering in their love for their God. He goes on and says this of grace in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Now to whom is able to do abundantly more than all that we could ask or imagine according to the power at work within us, which is grace. It enables us to do abundantly more. And so we see this list of grace. It's glorious. It's enlightening. It's empowering. It's living. It's uniting. It's ministering. It's enabling. You see, we need to be as concerned about what we know and understand about God as what we do for God and what we want Him to do for us. And so, all of a sudden, these small, simple words have so much packed into them because these are the things that He wants for us. He wants us to be people of peace. He wants us to be people of love. And He wants us to love His God, our God much, because of the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. You see, peace and love are directed towards our relationships with one another. But understanding the depths of grace is about our love for God Himself. As Paul ends this book... He is wanting nothing more than for the very things that Christ said on the night He was betrayed. He called them to love one another because that was going to be the mark of the church. That was going to be the the way that they knew we were different. There was going to be a difference because of the love that existed there. He wanted them to understand the full measure of what Christ was doing. Remember how confused the disciples were that night? When Jesus Christ was trying to explain that he was going to sacrifice himself, Paul said that, who was it, Peter, that said, don't do that. But God already understood the depth of grace that he was going to give us and the difference that would make. And that grace, and that love, and that peace, driven by faith, is the most important thing 
in the church today. That's why all the chaos could be going on out there during lacrosse. But in this place, because grace was key, young men were making life changes, spiritual life changes forever. That's the great reason why we spend so much time out there. That's why God calls us to live out there. Because He wants the grace to change people forever so they can be a part of this family of disjointed people that are only connected by the love of Jesus Christ that calls us together. That's why there can be people from New Jersey and Connecticut and Tennessee and New York and North Dakota and Florida. All these people from all of these different places can come together. And it's because of the glorious grace of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. And so my prayer for us is the same one that Paul had for his people. May we understand the peace that can be ours. The love from God that we can have for one another. And may grace be something we understand so very well that trusting God more and continual surrender to Him becomes much less of a big deal because, hey, there's nothing that's going to happen that's ever going to be a surprise to Him. There's a theology out that right now for a while that talks about the fact that God can be surprised and that His sovereignty is something that is progressive instead of static. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because what Paul is talking about doesn't work that way. Scripture doesn't teach that. We need a God that is static, that's always in control, that we can always love no matter what the circumstances of our life are. So as we come to the end of this prayer and to these challenges that he gave the Ephesian people, we need to think of that challenge as our own. You know what's so sad and so frustrating? If you read in Revelation chapter 2, it talks about Ephesus and it talks about their, their church. And do you know what they lost? Do you know what their church lost? Do you know what was their distraction? Do you know what Jesus held against that church? They had lost their first love. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in mine. And I know that there is a fight, a spiritual battle every day to never lose track of that first love for God. So I think it's appropriate that we end today with communion. And we end today with a reflection on all that the cross really means for us. How important it is. How it is really the keystone that all of life has to be focused on. Our understanding of the complete work of what Jesus Christ did on the cross is the most important thing for every circumstance of our lives. For some of you, this is a new idea. You've never made the decision to be a follower of Christ. You've decided that Jesus was a really great guy, and that is a problem. 
Because Jesus is much more than a great guy. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And you have a problem that he can solve. And that problem is, is that your life naturally stands in rebellion against God. And those decisions you've made really gives him permission, gives him permission to reject you. And yet, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you can ever have forever relationship with him. And that is a decision that you have to make. You have to decide to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Nobody can do it for you. Taking this little meal with us does not make you a Christian. Bowing your head before God and saying, I need a Savior is what makes you a Christian. If you've made that decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then I encourage you to come to this table. If you need to make that decision today, I I encourage you as we have a little bit of quiet at the beginning of this, to bow your head before God and say, Jesus, please be my Savior. I need you as my Savior. And for those of you who are walking with God, as you're moving towards that maturity of your grace so that your love for God no longer wavers, I know we're not all there yet. I am certainly not there. But once again, reflect on the joy of being forgiven by God and making sure that not only are you right with Him, but using this time of reflection to make sure you're right with each other. What we practice here at Lake Placid Baptist is called open communion. What that means is if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we encourage you to celebrate this act with us today. If you've never asked Him to be your Savior, if you're not there yet, let the the elements pass. The other thing that's part of our tradition here is that we hold the elements so that we can take them together. So as we take on the challenges that it talks about in Corinthians to make sure that we reflect and make sure that we're taking of the elements worthily, I encourage you to take the next couple minutes of quiet before the Lord. As I ask several members and, and, and people to come and pass the elements out with me um, so we can take this communion together. If I could have several people come and help. One more. Okay, Mary. 